All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And uh, we're going to actually jump later to Ephesians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 4. Those are uh, listed in your bulletin there. But I want to start simply in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then you get to 1 and 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. These are the words of God. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and manifests through us the aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Let's pray. Our Father and God of all mercy, your, your, promise, your promises are unending. You, you have promised never to break your covenant with us. What a joy. Amid all the changing words of our generation, we ask that you would speak your eternal word that does not change. And then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives through Christ our Lord. And amen. You can be seated. Well, I am, I'm very, very, very excited about this series, Life Together, for several reasons, but most notably because uh, as we grow as a church and as dynamics change, I think it's important to keep a pulse on how well or not we are stewarding the unity that we have in Christ. How well are we stewarding the unity we have in Christ? The bond we have is a grace from the Lord, so it is entirely appropriate for us to pause and reflect on whether or not we are living up to that grace in obedience. The Apostle Paul, he had no trouble reminding the Corinthians of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, he also certainly had no trouble reminding the Philippian church to rejoice in the Lord. And it is no trouble for any of us to take time to consider these sort of things, uh, to, to essentially consider it if we are contributing uh, we ought to consider it if we're, if we're contributing to the health of the body or not. That's you know, a kind of a sober thing to think through. Am I being helpful to the, to the body of Christ? We should be thinking about that. The topic of community is something that churches have been harping on for many, many years. Uh, with the rise of the automobile and the rise of the megachurch, uh, many pastors have had to try and foster a sense of community through building building-centered programs, which can be difficult when you deal with thousands of church members who have the ability to drive anywhere and everywhere for church, and oftentimes doing so uh, every year or two, hopping from one place to the next. And this unfortunate dynamic causes the ecclesia of God to think like franchises and businesses vying for tithe money so they can provide the best entertainment and programming. Of course, they won't say they're doing these things because they will masquerade the whole thing all in the name of discipleship. 
And as a result, the entire focus of churches becomes inward through, through programs and shallow versions of so-called community. So it's, the, you know, ignore the giant elephant in the room, not this room, but in the, in the county with the rise of personal property tax, uh, with the rise of, you know, of course, the problem of inflation. Uh, we gotta, we gotta, gotta fund these schools, gotta fund them because they're cranking out humanists left and right. So the church then has to compete. Well, we'll have youth group with lots of pizza and Mountain Dew, and uh, we will make them so full of carbohydrates that they pass out. And we call it community. And that is what happens. <laughs> I've been in those environments. And because of all of that, there really isn't a culture that is shaped by judicial relations relationships, thinking about how God expects us to treat each other. What does justice look like? How do we treat each other justly with righteousness? Uh, very rarely do you, do you think about that. Usually it's community is join the greeting team and that's the end of it. Or join a life group that just sits around and, and, and reads the Bible. If they're, if they're doing that, that's great. But usually it's often not, not anything kingdom oriented. It's just sort of, again, more of an internal thing. Uh, so there's no judicial relationships. There's really no exercise of patience and effort with one another. It's just sort of we're, we're all together and it's vague and nebulous and undefined. And everything is programmed and therefore there's really no meaningful culture. There's no meaningful culture. There's no uh, going after the high places in the world together. There's no storming the gates of, of hell. There's no dealing with the sin of abortion. There's no dealing with uh, the COVID lockdowns and all of this stuff. There's really, we don't talk about those things. We just sort of, let's try to make everybody happy. That's not really a culture, not the way Christ has called us to as, as participants of the kingdom of God. And think about it though. What is it that really unites congregations? What is it that unites churches? Is it a shared vision of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven? Or is it a popular preacher who's a New York Times bestseller, wears skinny jeans, and has really expensive shoes? Is that what unites a church? Is it a long-term commitment to building biblical trusty families? Or is it the music, the lights, and the thing we all love so much, the fog machines? Is that what unites a church? What would you answer? How would you answer that question? What is it that unites the people of God? Is it catechizing and homeschooling the children? Or is it the kids' programs that, quote, give parents a break? I've heard that before. Uh, one couple famously told me that they needed a kids' program so that their husband and wife could go to church together like on a date. So let's shove the kids off into a room to color pictures of Noah's Ark. It's, it's fine to do that, but no catechizing them, no worldview training, nothing. So what is it that uni unites a church? Is, it, is that unity that we have found in a rich, historic, theological conviction, you know, where, where we see the Bible and the worldview that we get from it, and, and we're on that same page. Do we see that together? Or is it, or is it, is it the beautiful multi-million dollar campus and facilities? How would you answer that question? What really unites congregations? In his book, Life Together, again, where I got the name for the series, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he rather powerfully and masterfully spells out the nature of community, and he emphasizes a few points. 
And um, I'm kind of summarizing them in my own way. But first, after quoting uh, Psalm 133.1, which reads, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Great, great Bible verse for this topic. But after quoting that, Bonhoeffer reminds us that those, though God's people are scattered across the world and though God's people live in the presence of God's enemies, they are united in Christ. So the unity isn't necessarily that we're all in the same place at the same time because there's Christians all over the world. Uh, Christ, the rise of the global south, Christianity is flourishing in the, in the southern hemisphere. But uh, he also says that visible community is a grace. Yes, it is. Second, Bonhoeffer states that, quote, Christian community means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ, end quote. Community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. In other words, a believer needs other believers. A believer needs others because of Christ and is joined with others because of Christ. The nature of our relationship and our unity is Jesus that's it. That's what brings us together. We might have particular affections for the same sports teams, or perhaps we like the same things, have the same similar hobbies, but none of that, none of that is possible to unite people for the kingdom. Most, I mean, most churches, they, they, they would have like a service for the masked and a service for the unmasked. And, and <laughs> that's like the new traditional service and the new contemporary service. And is there any unity in that? Well, no, but because they're working from the wrong presuppositions, they're working from the wrong starting point. Half of them are getting humanist educations, the other half are Christian education. There's just confusion in a lot of these places, but, that, but our unity isn't in any of those things, though they're helpful to advance the cause of Christ and his kingdom. The unity is Christ. A believer needs others because of Christ, is joined with others because of Christ, and due to God's predestinating activity, we are chosen in Christ from all eternity. So our unity has its origins in the eternality of God. Now the main emphasis for Bonhoeffer lies in the fact that Jesus Christ is the center of it all. He's the center of it all. Uh, if you have a, a, a church, even like ours, where we confess that Jesus is, a, is the center of it all, and we lose sight of that, when we lose sight of that, problems happen. When we lose sight of that, churches can split apart. They end up fighting over the carpet or perhaps the uh, fog machine. <laughs> so we live in Christ, we move in Christ, we have our being in Christ, and we die in Christ. And having been united together in Christ, our mutual dependence on Christ is a mutual dependence on one another. So each of us is related to Christ as an individual and as a corporate body, we too are related to Christ and thus we've been brought together in the same relation. Uh, scripture uses a lot of metaphors talking about the, the church, the body of Christ. Um, I'm going to probably deal with some more of those later in this series, but one of the most basic foundational languages that metaphors to describe us as a family. God has put us together as a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is our older brother who paid the debt for our sin. We have been forgiven in him, and now we are a part of the family. We're the family of God. To be united to Christ as an individual is to be united to each other as individuals. So, you know, the person next to you or a person behind you, the 
think about the unity we have. Well, what is the unity? The unity is Christ. Christ is what bonds us together, what binds us together, the bond of the Spirit, which we'll talk about in Ephesians momentarily. So unity and diversity only exist within the framework of the Trinity. Bonhoeffer says this, quote, Now Christians can live with each other in peace. They can love and serve one another. They can become one. But they can continue to do so only through Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ are we one. Only through him are we bound together. He remains the one and only mediator throughout eternity. End quote. So there is great significance in what Christ has done for his people. His grace to us means our grace to others. The, the, when you stop to think about how you interact with other people, your brothers and sisters in Christ in particular, uh, are we, is grace what marks us? Because you've been given grace, right? We've all been given grace in Christ, an immeasurable amount, an interminable amount. There's no end to it. So because of that, we give grace to others. Um, his forgiveness extended to us means forgiveness to others. We have been granted peace. We've been made right by the Prince of Peace. Therefore, we seek peace with others. Blessed are the peacemakers. We'll get to that on the week when we talk about how to resolve conflict. What we have in Christ, we give to one another in Christ. Don't miss that. What we have in Christ, we give to one another in Christ. Paul says in Romans 15, verse 7, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Again, Romans 15, 7. So stated another way, in our relationships with one another, we are to encounter and interact with each other in the same way that Christ has encountered and interacted with us. And what unites a church is Christ, the second person of the glorious triune Godhead. And Bonhoeffer is quick to talk about this. He says that it's not an ideal. It's not an ideal that unites us, but a divine reality. Far, far, far too many people live in the clouds with an idealized version of community that fits their perceived needs, and it does not touch the biblical prescription. And this, I think, is a pervasive problem. I think it's something that's affected our community to some degree or another, too. We have an idealized version. This is, what, this is how I envision this to be. And then we're not there, so we disengage or we uh, bemoan the problem, whatever it is. And we have this idealized version. I really, you should really get that book and, and look at what Bonhoeffer talks about. It's really, really good. If you have like these, if you have these perceived needs and you think something should be that way and you're not living up to it and neither is anybody else really, then we've, we've, we're stuck. We're stuck in idealized land, but that's not what unites people. It's not our ideals. It's divine reality. It isn't also, it, it isn't about some emotional draw either. Um, people will visit a church and how, how, do, how do you feel about it? Well, no one greeted me. No one said hi. So obviously I feel really bad about it. Well, who did you talk to? Oh, well, no, nobody. We just kind of snuck in. Snuck in late, sat in the back, and then left right away. Well, no one talked to you because no one knew you were there. <laughs> but that's this emotional or idealized version 
And it's not any of those. It's spiritual unification that transcends us. It is Christ in us, around us, in front of us, behind us, above us, under us, and for us. It is Christ and Christ alone. So how does community work? I want to look at our passages here. Let's start with 2 Corinthians 2. Verse 14, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and manifests through us the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. This uh, passage is, is essentially the theme for the entire series. And while we don't have time to get into all of the exegetical points, I want to simply point out a, a, a couple of things. First, Paul is, is pulling from the imagery of a Roman triumph after war. Whenever an emperor would go and conquer an area, a land, there would be a procession, a huge party, a huge festival, and the, the Romans would celebrate. Um, and in Paul's mind, though, Christ is our captain. He is our commander-in-chief. We are his captives. We are the spoils of war. So we were slaves to sin. He redeems us. To, redemption means to buy back. He buys us back from the market, and we are now slaves of him. We are not slaves of sin. We're slaves of Christ. We are his captives, and he is, in all the pomp and circumstance, running through the street, celebrating the victory, and we are behind him, and we too are excited about it. We were former enemies. Christ redeemed us. Second, incense and other aromatics were commonly used in festival settings, both religious settings and even civil settings. So especially in temples, incense, different fragrances were, were, were put on display. Um, this was a very well-known cultural thing at the time, any sort of festival setting. Um, again, religious could be religious setting or it could be just a simple civil, especially in the Roman, <laughs> Roman world. But what Paul, Paul's point here is that the suffering of Paul, the suffering that he and the apostles have had to, to deal with, and, and uh, Christians as well, that suffering was an aroma of the knowledge of God for the world to take in. So the church is the diffuser. The essential oil is the knowledge of God in the gospel. Couldn't help but throw that in there. The, that's the church. The church is the diffuser. What are we diffusing? The knowledge of God. That's Paul's point. Third, depending on your status with the king, the aroma will either provoke you one or two, uh, or two ways. Uh, if you're applauding the king, you're celebrating his glorious victory, then of course it's a sweet and pleasing aroma. It's a wonderful smell. Yes, this is the smell of victory. Maybe it's frankincense in the air. I don't know. It's something nicer maybe than that. But the, the captives, though, who hate this king, however, will be doomed to eternal judgment. Paul says, and the point I want to emphasize here is that we, the people of God, we dispense that aroma, we dispense that fragrance of Christ to the world. We are living sacrifices, and just like the Old Testament emphasizes the pleasing scent of a sacrifice, go look up Leviticus 117 later, Leviticus 117, uh, in the same way, we, in obedience to the king, we labor together to offer up a sweet-smelling aroma of the kingdom. So as joyful captives, we, the church, proclaim Christ in all things, and we find ourselves giving off a scent of gospel knowledge, something pleasing to the elect, something atrocious to the reprobate. And that's not our task to decide who is who. We, we give off the smell, we preach the gospel, the elect will hear, the sheep know his voice, 
Those who don't, the reprobate, who are condemned, they won't hear, they won't respond. But we don't get to decide who that is. That's God's prerogative. We simply diffuse. Now flip to the book of Ephesians a few pages after Corinthians. Galatians, then Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, but we're going to focus on the uh, verses 3 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So in this text, the Apostle Paul, again, he urges us to be diligent, but it has to be a diligence in the right direction. Uh, we can be diligent about sin, right? No doubt. But that's not the biblical call, the biblical prescription. Here, the Bible commands us to walk in the calling of the gospel. That's verse 1. But doing so with certain things, certain features about that walking. Uh, humility is supposed to be present. Gentleness is supposed to be pre present. And patience. And notice those are the fruit of the Spirit. He, the Spirit is a part of this, of course. We walk in the manner of the gospel with humility, gentleness, and patience. And also note that included in this recipe here in verse 2 is the bearing with one another in love. The Bible does not say tolerate one another with fake love. Bear with one another in love. The thing about these characteristics is the fact that they can only be exercised in the context of the other. You can only do that in the context of the other. Sure, they stem from the heart, no doubt. There's no argument there. But clearly, the way that we walk in this calling requires a certain attitude towards others. Okay, how do you bear with one another without the other? That's the point. How, how do you express humility? Well, you don't boast about it, right? I'm so humble. I have the award for it, you know. No, humility is exercised in the context of other people. Humility, and so is patience, and so is gentleness. It's exercised in the context of other people, not just you in your own head. I'm the most humble, patient person there is. And you sit and you think about it, like, man, this is great. I am really good. Well, now you have a pride problem. <laughs> but again, this is in the context of the other. So uh, there's a certain attitude that's required for, for us to reiterate, though, Paul says to be diligent in keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, verse 3. That is, unity isn't something only one person can keep. I think that's what a lot of pastors think that their job is, to just try to keep people unified. That's really not anything that can be done. <laughs> no one man, no one person, no one individual in any church could do that. But Paul doesn't say to make unity uh, create unity or program community. He doesn't say any of that. The call is for us to keep that which we already possess. Note that. The word keep is actually a reference to a warden or, or a guard or a watchman. So everyone, not just an elder or a pastor, has the responsibility to watch over the unity Christ has given us. Does that make sense? You, you can't 
foster community and try to program it to death, united around humanist presuppositions and all this other stuff. You can't do it. Our job is to protect and watch over something that we already have. You don't have to make it. It's already ours. And when you lose sight of that, that's when things go sideways. He says to watch, to keep. Everyone has a responsibility. Every single one of you in this room and those who are not here, who couldn't be here tonight, are just as responsible as you. I'm no more responsible than you are. All of us are called to this. The Holy Spirit has forged a bond of peace between Christ and the self and between all of his ransomed captives. So watch over it carefully, Paul says. And he goes on in verses 4 through 6 to describe the unity and the oneness that exists in God's redemptive economy. There's one body, he says. There's one organism. It's an organism with Christ as the head, the new creation, and a new man. All of us are like organs in this one body. And that's everybody from every church. Everyone who confesses the faith, who has repented and trusted Christ. We have the visible church that we can see, which may have some who are unbelie unbelievers who are just going through the motions. But then we have, of course, the invisible church. So visible, invisible, that's sort of a typical reformed way to, to put it. But we all are organs and aspects of this one body. Christ is the head of it. So there's one spirit the Holy Spirit, life infuser who energizes the body. There is one Lord. His name is Jesus. There is one faith placed in God alone. There is one baptism. Probably the Spirit's baptism which regenerates God's people. But certainly the one baptism we see in Matthew 28 is applicable and connected to that. So there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Note those three things. Over all through all and in all. To be over all is to be transcendent and sovereign over all. To be through all is to speak of the totality of his guiding presence in everything. And to be in all is to speak of God's indwelling presence with his people. All of this describes the bond and all of this celebrates the beauty of this God-granted unity. It's ours to watch over. Now keep flipping toward the end of your Bible, to 1 Thessalonians. Philippians, Colossians, and then you get right to it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Now concerning love of the brothers... You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brothers who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to excel still more and, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will walk properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Now, historically, in the Greco-Roman world, status was corporate and familial, not individualistic. America is driven by individualism. In the Greco-Roman world, it was not like that. Your last name mattered. Where you came from mattered. What your dad did mattered. Uh, that's status. That was how you had um, you know, notoriety, shall we say. So clan ties were the bedrock of society. And here Paul emphasizes the need for love 
And this love is a genuine self-sacrifice. This agape love is to will the good of the other, to esteem someone as better, more important than yourself. That's love. It is the agape love that Paul says the Thessalonians have done well. And in, in many regards, we've all done well. But there's still more to the story, of course. It is this agape love, Paul says, that fuels the Philadelphia, the brotherly love. And yet, even being taught by God in this manner and practicing it well doesn't mean we don't need to continue to do it. He tells the Thessalonians to excel still more. You you guys are loving each other and it's great. Do it more. There's no cap to this. There's no cap to love, right? There's no ceiling where you just tap out and that's it. No, love is always driven by self-sacrifice. Love is always driven by treating others as more important than yourself. Love is always looking at the good of the other, first and foremost. Love for one another, exhibited in Christ's great love for the church, is something to abound in. It's something to always pursue. It's something to always cultivate in our lives. There's always complacency to avoid. Anybody fell into complacency? Seasons of despair? got lazy, got out of rhythm, not reading your Bible, not praying, not engaging with people in community, right? Have we gone through complacency? Complacency is something to avoid. It's something to run away from, to run far away from. Paul says we ought to make it our ambition to, quote, lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands. Great admonition. In an age of social media, that's difficult to do because everybody's in everybody's business. And we do this, he says, so that we can walk properly towards outsiders, so we can, we can be above reproach, so that we can live a certain way that honors God, a quiet life, right? Doing our own business, uh, attending to our own things, working with our hands. But we also need to do it so that we can excel in love, what he just told them. People are prone to concern themselves with what others are doing when they are not being quiet, not attending to their own business, and are not working with their hands. Right? I mean, that's people meddle in in that type of stuff because they're not doing what God has called them to do. So they meddle, they make a mess, people have to come and clean it up. If this stings a little bit, it should. So how does community work? Or more precisely, what is it we're supposed to do exactly? Now, when I was preparing for this sermon uh, a few weeks ago, I had planned to do something like Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, uh, except I was going to do 10 Rules for Community, uh, summarizing some of these things that I find in the New Testament. And then I stumbled upon John Owen's um, little book called Duties of Christian Fellowship, and I figured, well, why reinvent the wheel? So the following 15 rules are actually from, from Owen. Um, they are biblically rooted and absolutely worthy of our consideration. If you have the sheet, you can follow along there. Owen, taught, Owen lays out verses after verses, and then he kind of explains his logic. I'm going to give you a verse and ask rhetorical questions for your consideration and say some things in my own regard. I didn't even read all of what Owen had said other than these rules, which I thought were fantastic. So I'm going to read it, read the verse, and then I'm going to add a comment. Number one, he says, Believers have a duty of affectionate, sincere, genuine love in all things, towards one another, a love compared to that of Christ for the church. 
John 15, 12 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. What is the standard for our love towards one another? Christ. You have a responsibility. You have an obligation to be genuine towards one another. Not fake. We're going to deal with, on one week, people-pleasing. We have, a, we have a responsibility to be genuine towards one another, sincere towards one another, and loving towards each other. And this requires transparency and the desire to will the good of the other person. It requires patience. It requires effort. It requires humility. And frankly, it requires integrity. It does. If we fail to appreciate the miracle that is Christian community and fellowship, we won't be genuine in our efforts at building it. Number two, believers must maintain continual prayer for the prospering of the church under God's protection. Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the Spirit, and to this end, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So, can you honestly say that you're praying for the people sitting in front of you or behind you? Have you sent them a text and said, how can I pray for you? You've been on my mind. Can you honestly say that you're praying for the prospering of the church? Locally, cross and crown. Part of that prospering Owen talks about in the first part of the book, he actually talks about the congregation's relationship to the pastor and the elders, too. Uh, and that really wasn't the focus of this message anyway, so I didn't really include it. But he talks about attending to the ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, um, following your pastor's example as he follows Christ, following the elder's example. Uh, Paul says as much, right? Follow me as I follow Christ. To the degree that any of us are following Christ, we need to follow each other in that regard. He also talks about praying for and esteeming your pastors and elders, paying for your pastor's salary, standing by your leaders in their various trials, and making the gathering together a priority in your life. Um, so that's in Owen's, uh, the first part of that book, but it's part of the prospering of the church. We should be praying for the prospering of cross and crown. We should pray that we would take root in this community in a way that people would start to wake up to the comprehensive nature of the gospel of the kingdom as it applies to every area of life. There's so much richness to be offered in Scripture and the gathering of God's people, but many people are content to just drink milk and they lull themselves to sleep, Hebrew warns against. So all of these things contribute to the prospering of cross and crown. Number three. Believers must strive and fight with determination in every legitimate way by their actions and sufferings for the purity of the ordinances, for the honor, liberty, and privileges of the congregation, and in order to help others in the face of all opponents and adversaries. One verse for you, 1 John 3.16. By this we have known love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The church has been given the word the ordinances and the blessings of being the body of Christ, are you protecting it? Or have you let your guard down and the enemy has plundered it? Are you protecting it? Are you striving for it? Are you determined to join yourself to it? Number four, believers must maintain an unremitting care and effort to preserve unity, both in general and in particular. 
1 Corinthians 1.10, Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. 2 Corinthians 13.11, Finally, brothers, rejoice, be restored, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Question, can you say that you have done everything possible to preserve the unity we have in Christ? It's a humbling, humbling thing to consider. Number five, believers are to separate and keep apart from the world and from the men of the world and all their ways of false worship so that we are seen to be different people. When he says, by the way, to be apart from the world, when the Puritans talk like this, they don't mean like, like, don't get a job and don't ever go to the supermarket and don't engage in politics. When, usually when that is stated in this way, to avoid all worldly pleasures, it simply means to avoid the debauchery that often comes with the way the world works and its sin. Ephesians 5, 8 and verse 11. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light and do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. Are you fleeing sin? Are you fleeing idolatry? Are you pursuing holiness in front of a watching world? All of us are obligated to do so. Number six, believers should engage in frequent spiritual conversation for edification according to the measure of their gifts. Ephesians 4, 29, and chapter 5, verse 4. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up for what is needed, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Nor filthiness and foolish talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. What do you talk about when you're talking with others? What do you talk about? Are you quick to gossip or are you quick to speak of the kingdom? Um, is your life marked by constant sarcasm or joking or jesting and jabbing at others and a general lack of seriousness in your life? Would people know that you care seriously about the kingdom? Number seven, believers must bear with one another's infirmities, weaknesses, sensitivities, and failings in meekness, patience, and pity and providing help and assistance. This is Romans uh, 14, 13 and, and Romans 15, 1 through 2. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather judge this, not to put a stumbling block or offense before a brother. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his building up. Do you prefer to laugh, judge unrighteously, and mock the failings of others? Or do you go to prayer first? Are you seeking to help others or hurt them? Number eight, believers must support one another tenderly and affectionately in their various circumstances and conditions, bearing one another's burdens. Galatians 6, 2, one of my favorite verses. Bear one another, another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We think of the law of God as just, what should the magistrate do to punish wickedness? And that's an appropriate thing. And we should think about those things. But Paul says here, you want to fulfill the law of Christ? Bear one another's burdens. There's theonomy for you. To say that we don't need each other is to say that we do not need Christ. Casting someone away from the body is casting yourself away from Christ and what he has established. 
So are you supporting one another? Are you tangibly supporting one another? Number nine, believers are voluntarily to contribute and share in temporal things with those who are truly poor in a way that is suitable to their necessities, wants, and afflictions. Galatians 6.10, another powerful verse. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Self-explanatory. Are you generous with your time? Are you generous with, with your, your talents, with your treasures? If someone has a need, are you quick to, to help out? Number 10, believers ought to note watchfully and carefully, excuse me, and avoid carefully all causes and causers of divisions. They are particularly to shun seducers, false teachers, and those who spread heresies and errors that are contrary to the word of God. Romans 16, now I urge you, brothers, to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and stumblings contrary to the teaching which you learned, and to turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own stomach. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So, do you care enough about the Word of God to defend it at all cost? Number 11, believers should cheerfully accept the lot and portion of the whole church in prosperity and affliction and not draw back for any reason whatsoever or whatever. Matthew 13, and the one, who, the one on whom seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. When things get difficult, do you run away? Come hell or high water, are you willing to stay and fight, stay engaged, stay committed to the people of God, stay committed to the, to the ordinances Christ has given us, stay committed to the word of God? Are you going to fall away? Do you spend time daydreaming about this idealized version of community? You know, people who will, oh man, I, the grass is always greener somewhere, right? It's just always greener somewhere. That's not always the case. Number 12, in church affairs, believers must not discriminate between persons, but condescend to the weakest brother and perform the least service for the good of fellow believers. Matthew 20, it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Listen, here's a question. This will sting a little bit. How low are you willing to place yourself? How low? Are you willing to get down on your hands and knees and scrape gum off the gym floor? Are you willing to wash a toilet? Are you willing to wash someone's feet? Are you willing to lay it all on the line for other people? Number 13, if any member is in distress, persecution, or affliction, the whole church is to be humbled and to be earnest in prayer on his behalf. 1 Corinthians 12, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Make known your requests to the people of God and make haste to prayer. Someone comes in and says, I have a prayer request. Drop what you're doing. Pray. Make haste to prayer. As quickly as you receive that prayer request from somebody in this body, pray for them. Uh, who among us has done that per perfect? Not me, not you. 
Number 14, believers must watch one another's behavior carefully and warn one another to avoid all disorderly conduct. If any offending member will not accept such warning, their case must be brought to the church. Hebrews 3, see to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Owen is also speaking of Matthew 18 and the process for church discipline. Church discipline is a thing. There is a process. There is something that Jesus tells us. We should love someone enough to confront their egregious sin. And uh, many people lack the grace necessary to do that, perhaps lack the training necessary to, to walk through that. We're going to talk about some of those things. Lastly, Believers should live and walk in an exemplary way in all holiness and godliness to the glory of the gospel, the education of the church, and the conviction of those outside the church. Matthew 5, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We are on a mission and the requirement is holiness, the requirement is godliness, it is self-sacrifice, and it is love, so run to it. So how does community work? Prayer, supplication, the means of grace. We say the means of grace, we're talking word, preaching, baptism, the Lord's Supper, all of those things. And what, what else is required? An all-out commitment to preserving what Christ has done in us. There are certain things that pertain to us as a body internally, and it also pertains to us as a body living as salt and light in a world that desperately needs help and guidance. So how does community work? Well, that's a little snippet of it. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're, we're thankful for many men you've ra raised up in history to help articulate these things. Uh, I, I pray and ask that you would help us to ponder what it is you'd have for us. Help us to be quick to, to want to be humble uh, towards one another, to be patient, to bear one another's burdens, to pray for one another. God, would you, would you bless us in that endeavor? May your spirit convict us so that, so that we can do that. We need the grace that you've given us. You have brought us together in Christ. Help us to maintain that unity. Help us to strive for wisdom and peace. And Lord, help use Crossing Crown for the glory of your name in this world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.